Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Steve Harrison, a man so outspoken, he's talking to us from a safe house in Blackpool. Steve (laughs) is one of the most iconic and talented creative directors in the industry, smashing that role at both Ogilvy and Wonderman. In between, he squeezed in founding HTW, where he bagged more can lions in his discipline than any other creative director in the world. Steve has also written several books, including How to Do Better Creative Work, which became the most expensive ad book ever when it traded on Amazon for three and a half grand a pop. Whilst his latest and recently updated Can't Sell, Won't Sell has been described by the IPA as the most provocative advertising book in years. Steve says it's a great irony that an industry that puts such an emphasis on diversity appears to be so lacking in diversity of opinion. Welcome to the show, Steve. (laughs) Thank you very much, Giles. If you've been to Blackpool recently, you know it's a pretty rough place. There aren't many safe houses in Blackpool. (laughs) (laughs) It's the place I would go to uh, if I was fearing for my um, my safety, certainly. Seven quickfire questions then, uh, Steve. Tea tea or coffee? Tea. Blackpool or South London? Oh, God. Um, oh, well, I've made my home in South London. I go back to Blackpool in order to, to you know, um, take on family, family responsibilities. So South London. Fact or fiction? Oh, without doubt, fact. Dennis Law or Ryan Giggs? Oh, Dennis Law, without absolute doubt. <laughs> Easy. Tom Wolfe or Bill Jamie? Um, Tom Wolfe. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or 20 Soho Square? <laughs> Guys, 20 Soho Square. <laughs> right, last one. Uh, so this is who or which is scarier? Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds mm. or Drayton Bird? Drayton Bird. <laughs> Quite an intimidating man, I, I, I get the impression. Um, as a copywriter, you, you, you lived in fear of the creak of the floorboard behind you. And then, then if, you hadn't hit, hit pre- if you hadn't hit F10, which was the close screen button in time, Drayton would then start reading your copy out to everybody, uh, to all of the creative department. Listen to this, Mr. ladies and gentlemen, what Mr. <laughs> Harrison's got to say about American Express today. And of course, it would be, your, you know, it might be your first draft. You know, it usually was your first draft when you were just writing bollocks, you know. Yeah. But then, and then he would, oh God, yeah. It was, <laughs> it was a tough school. 
Yeah, no, it certainly sounds that way. Well, Steve, again, thank you for joining us. Um, as you know, we really like to highlight the non-linear routes that people often take into Adland. Yeah. So can you explain your route? Because I've heard you say you started as a, quote, stranger to advertising, which I think to use industry lingo, I think there's a competitive advantage of sorts there. Yeah, yeah. Um, my, I think you, uh, you mentioned my first job or jobs. My first yeah. job was um, at Rolling Jones Bookmakers. When I was, um, I mean, apart from summer jobs, the first kind of, when I left school, I got a job in the bookies, which cured me of my own gambling um, um, habit, you know, because I saw people coming in on a Friday and walking out 15 minutes later, sans wages. And so that cured me of my gambling. And subsequently, I kind of, it put me off gambling. Um, And as you'll see in my book, I'm not, I don't. I would never have taken a gambling account as an agency. Um, I worked as a bloody hell, a, a gardener. I had three months in the civil service, and my first day there, I remember I cried at quarter to five because the clock seemed like it had stopped. You know, uh, it just it just wasn't <laughs> that bad. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I welled up. You know, I, I don't cry, really? but you know, kind of. Um, and but I was just welled up at just the sheer horror. Of what I was, what I, what I was, I thought would might be the future. Then I got a job as a gardener, as a builder's labourer, all, all kind of barman. Um, had my own sandwich business, which was very. Uh, I, I, I preempted Pret a Manger by something like <laughs> years. Um, that was and yeah. Um, so my first job, my first job really with a proper salary over £5,000 a year, was at Ogilvy and Mather as a researcher, as a librarian. I always say researcher, but I was I was a librarian. You didn't, you couldn't pull the birds by saying you were a librarian, but um, <laughs> not, and not by saying you were a researcher either, to be quite honest. You need to be in the creative department. And I, and I heard um, that rather ironically, uh, in, in many ways, a recruitment consultant told you that you were unmarketable yes. ahead of getting that job. Yeah, yeah. I'd, well, I'd spent a lot of time in, in graduate studies. I Because I didn't know what I wanted to do, I just I kept on staying at university until eventually they kicked me out. Um, and I pitched up in London than everybody else did in the mid-80s. Mid rather grandiosely, I went to see a recruitment consultant who, in very short order, just looked at my CV and said, you're unmarketable, which was true, I suppose. I wasn't equipped for anything. I had no great skill, you know. But such advertising was such that it used to take in mavericks, waifs and strays like myself, people who had failed in other areas and couldn't get a job in other in anywhere else, you know. But with but who had acquired some experience of life. Yeah, no, no doubt. And I, I suspect um, growing yeah. up in Blackpool you probably were exposed to quite a lot of life as well. My friend Chris Slater said that Blackpool teaches you everything. In those days, it, te it taught you everything you needed to know by the time you were 16 and then could teach you nothing else. You know, okay. it, was, it was a holiday town which taught you to see tourists as punters, you know, and, and people you made money out of. Um, and then for eight months of the year, that's what you did. And then for four months of the year, it was the kipper season, you know, kind of, um, and you and people worked from. I mean, my partner Morag worked from like thirteen years of age every summer, you know, kind of um, on the Golden Mile, 
Um, so yeah, it taught you a lot. It, it, it was a good grounding, you know, very good mm. grounding for, 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 you know, the rough and tumble of life. And, and what made you want to leave Blackpool then? Oh, economic expediency. There was no jobs. Yeah. There. This is what this is what Chris meant. That right. after sixteen, there were no, there was nowhere else for you to go. You know, you know, you worked in bars. You worked on the Golden Mile. You sold you, you know, bingo stalls, teddy bears. There's no industry there at all. You know. So, um, how old were you then, Steve, when you did get that first gig in? Twenty nine. Okay. 29, you know, I was, I was, and then I, I, I waited 12 months to become a copywriter when Drayton said, do you want to be a writer? Um, and, um, and so I was a 30 year old, I was the 30 year old trainee with mm. a lot of um, 21 year olds, 22 year olds, many of whom had come from, they used to recruit from Wakefield Tech of all places. So unfortunately I was surrounded not only by youngsters, but youngsters from Yorkshire. Yeah, it's it's um it's a it's a key point to make, and it's one that I think we've consistently tried to make with as many guests as possible. But I just from my own experience working in in Adland, albeit mostly or if not entirely for small independents, the the best people I've ever worked with all have a background that is not straight from you know a shiny college to a shiny university to a shiny agency. They were all, in fact, one of the best copywriters was an arc that I know of. Yeah. used to be an archaeologist another yeah. great marketer i know was a car salesman for the best oh, you know would... the first half of his his career you know what do you know what do they know of advertising you only advertising know to plagiarize somebody if if all you are is steeped in in this you know kind of like dubious craft well, actually there's nothing wrong with being steeped in it right but if you've got no experience of life, the great skill with advertising is empathy, to put yourself in the position of the people you are writing to, yeah. uh, to understand your audience and to know what motivates them and to know what, what will excite them and interest them. That is the soul of any good, ad, any effective piece of advertising. And as a 22-year-old kid straight out of college, what the hell do you know, you know? Mm. Um, so by the time I was 30, I'd been around the block a few times, you know, <laughs> um, and so I could understand people and I was, you know, can I, I've always been a curious person. Some would say in more, both senses of the word, but I've always <laughs> been curious about what makes people tick, you know, kind of, um, and so that combined with a reasonably good experience of life stood me in very good stead so and I always knew that I could catch up with the kids in their knowledge of advertising simply by reading as much as I possibly could but they couldn't catch me up in terms of life experience you said you were 29 I heard you say on on the great episode you recorded with Dave Dye which we'll link to in this episode's listing that you were you arrived fully formed well <laughs> or formed at least more formed I than had me. a I had a reasonably fully formed yeah I had a, a, a formed personality yeah yeah, yeah. If that's what you mean yes yeah um and and also desperation it's a great driver you know kind of uh, having been having struggled and and um and been rejected and failed uh desperation is a great driver you know kind of it yeah. makes you work very hard 
how did you find those first few months in the context of being desperate and having having worked in in various kind of shapes and, and forms? I'd never worked in an office before you see um you know I mean that was that that brief episode in the civil service when I wept at quarter to five was the only time I'd ever worked in an office so it was very strange for me to be working amongst you know I, I'd, I'd done my doctorate I'd spent and I got an MA and a doctorate in between working on building sites and working on bars and starting, you know, sandwich businesses. So, so I was I was a loner, you know. I'd, I'd I'd got used to my own company, and so the hardest thing was suddenly working with two hundred and fifty people. You know, it was, <laughs> yeah. and um, but it was great. But I was the low person on the totem pole. I, I I mean, my place on the totem pole was actually below the ground. That's how low on the totem pole that I was. So, and my job as the researcher was to serve their needs. You know, if someone needed to know a particular fact or somebody needed a report on this or an opinion on that, it was great. You know, kind of, Mm. I was, I was, I enjoyed all of that kind of stuff. Um, And it was new to me. No one in my family had ever done anything remotely like this, Giles. I mean, you know, to work in advertising and, you know, kind of, it was like, and I'd, I'd never intended to work in advertising either. It's just, how, what am I doing? I'm in Soho Square in the middle of the 80s when UK advertising is the best in the world and it's the most glamorous occupation in the UK in those days where the advertising agency of record is, seems to be pulling the strings in number 10 Downing Street, you know, Satchez. Um so it was great. It was great. Most I couldn't believe it. You know, I thought I was very lucky. I, I, I still believe I was very lucky. I mentioned the quote from the IPA in your intro about the book being the most provocative advertising book in years. And without intending to put words in your mouth, I, I think it's fair to say you don't think your book, Can't Sell, Won't Sell, should really be provocative. Because actually what you're talking about and what you're highlighting is... Is, is actually quite a shared opinion. There's a, there's a great part. I don't mean to, I don't, without meaning to do a disservice to your incredibly illustrious career and skip yeah. fast forward the years straight to talk about okay. the book and specifically uh, the new chapters, which as we record this, I think launched yesterday. Is that right? With the book launch, yeah. Yeah. book launch next week. You've said that the industry yeah. is great at post rationalization and looking into the future and making predictions, but it's shit at introspection. Did I say shit? Yes, it's not good at, it's good at post-rationalising, of course, that's what award entries are. It's good at looking into the future, that's what the charlatans do and tell you what the next silver bullet or snake or bottle of snake oil will be, but it is dreadful at introspection. Analysing what it does and being critical of itself and saying this is where we could do better and this is how we could improve. So, yeah. Um, do I think that the book is controversial? Um, is, there's an interesting point I would make here. Third, up until very recently, if something was regarded as controversial, it would be leapt upon by people of a creative bent, of a liberal-minded, progressive bent. If something was controversial, it would be swarmed all over by people who have a liberal progressive bent and a creative bent and regard and, and being controversial was regarded as a good thing. Nowadays, mm. to be regarded as controversial comes with a warning that what what this this film book 
whatever contains might actually be offensive to the conventional wisdom as held by progressive liberal creative people. Yeah. So what used to what controversial used to be regarded as a good thing. Controversial now is oh my god, how dare he say that? So, mm. you know, and the people who used to stand for freedom of speech and and destabilizing the establishment are now the establishment and see my book as destabilizing of their their sensibilities. Do you understand the, mm. the paradox there or the irony? Yeah, yeah, completely. It's almost like they're policing it themselves now. Well, they have become the police. The people who used to argue for destabilizing, the people who used to argue against convention, the people who used to regard themselves as mavericks have now become the guardians of everybody's sensibility. How sadly and horrifically ironic. Well, well, yeah, and they need to be challenged just as just as all the people in the establishment need to be challenged, just as all those who regard themselves as the custodians of our morals and ethics need to be challenged. <laughs> I think they need to be challenged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, because, you know, you know, who who asked them to be the custodians of our morals and ethics? Did you? I didn't. No, exactly. Well, the, the new chapters start Welcome Back, which um, incidentally is what every best man's opening should be if a groom ever remarries. Um, <laughs> I've, I've heard of someone yeah. delivering that recently. But it ends quite positively, in, in my opinion, anyhow, because it, it, you remark how that you assumed that the entire industry was sold on purpose, etc., but far from it. Yeah. So it didn't actually get that backlash that perhaps you might have anticipated. No, I didn't have to join the witness protection program, <laughs> as I imagined that I was. I really was bracing myself for a shitstorm, and it never broke. It's the weirdest thing. It never broke. Um, what I was pleasantly surprised by was the warm reception, the positive reception that it got from particularly agencies outside of London. Um, there was a... Um, yeah, you know, kind of the, the agencies in Leeds and, and, and Manchester, Bristol, Glasgow were, you know, kind of were almost, I, I can't remember getting any criticism at all. But quite frankly, I don't regret, I didn't get any criticism from any of the London agencies, which, which surprised me. Um, but I think this summed up the response from the people out in the regions. It comes from Andy Bundy, the creative director of the AND Partnership in Manchester. And he wrote, to everyone working on what's left of our business, I'd like to ram this book so far down your throat <laughs> that you could read it without taking your head out of your arse. <laughs> uh, this amused his counterparts in Newcastle and Bristol and Leeds and Glasgow because the influence being that the people executing the unusual yoga position Andy described <laughs> were running the modern agencies down in London. Yeah. Amazing! What what brilliant <laughs> brilliant! Not only a brilliant image, um, oh, but a brilliant yes, piece yeah. of writing from from yes, <laughs> from Andy yeah, there. Definitely. Well, I've subsequently suggested that someone, perhaps Andy, should be the next president of DNAD, um, because DNAD pulls its uh, and you know the industry pulls its leaders from the same pool of people, the same who share the same monoculture, the same backgrounds, the same opinions. Um, and it would I'm not sure whether 
I mean, DNA falls over itself in order, and the, all the institutions fall over themselves to protect, to present a picture of diversity. But of course, it's not cognitive diversity. It isn't. They don't have people in there who might have the temerity to hold a different opinion to them. Yeah. So Andy Bundy for the next president of DNAD, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, I'll back that. I'll happily back that. I, I like. I, I mean, I think I. I, I like the um, again being a small, well, not even small, tiny, tiny independent outside of London. I do. I do. I do have a different view. I think of the London bubble than the majority of the the big agency groups who, of course, typically work in London or eighty, eighty five percent ish. I think. Um, is the numbers that I've lifted from your from your book, um, and, and um, it's quite telling. Um, nearly thirty two thousand people work for the big six global agency groups in the UK, and uh, about twenty seven thousand of them, or around eighty five percent, work in London. Yeah, ninety uh, percent of WPP's ten thousand staff, and Omnicom's six thousand five hundred people, and ninety five percent of publicist groups' five thousand employees work in London. of Facebook's 3,000 people and 75% of Channel 4's 800 employees work in London. The people who run our cultural industries are London-based, with the London-based worldview. So there's that word diversity. I suppose we could throw that at location and geography. Of course. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Why do you think the independents were more uh, in tune with, with what you were saying? I think I was arguing that, I am arguing that commercial purpose should take precedence over social purpose. I am not arguing that commercial purpose and social purpose are mutually exclusive, certainly not. And I give examples in the book of how of, of campaigns that have been hugely successful that align the two. But I, my argument is that commercial purpose should take precedence. Mm. And I think that those smaller regional shops are more in tune with that because they know they get their bottom smacked if by their clients if they, if, they, if they didn't make the commercial purpose of their, the commercial well-being of their clients the number one priority yeah. for their activities. Uh, they, work, they are more entrepreneurial because they work with more entrepreneurial, smaller, medium-sized businesses. And they wouldn't get paid. I mean, I, you know, I, sp- I spoke to people who worked in the regions, and they say, we wouldn't get paid. If our work is seen to be bombing, then, we, then our clients won't be able to pay us. Mm. Yeah, kind of, so it, it's, it, when a man's going to get hanged at five o'clock that afternoon, it certainly concentrates the mind. And when the client <laughs> won't pay you, at five o'clock on a Friday, because the work's bombed, that certainly concentrates the mind, Giles. Completely. You you used the word desperation earlier, Steve, as that kind of driver. Well, I've never been so desperate to earn my clients' money as I have been during the pandemic, because I know yeah. that without that service and without that value being delivered in whatever guys is delivered or whatever any ch- other channel, I'm not going to be able to keep paying salaries of my team at the agency. So, and I yeah. and I wonder if that is is felt at a large group uh, in the same way. I'm sure it is felt in certain rooms, but Well, but I'm sure it is, but, but there is a difference. As soon as a, a business goes over, what is the usual thing, you know, kind of like over 120 people? Mm. 
I mean, not, not even 120 people. If you've got half a dozen people, you know them, Giles. They're friends. You know, you have a personal responsibility and a personal bond with them. And if you let them go, you know that their family will suffer. But if you're working for Omnicom and the edict comes down that you've got to lose 10% of your people, uh, you can deliver that edict by tweet, you know, uh, by email. Um, and you never see the buggers again. You know, kind of so the bigger the organisation, the less sense of personal responsibility the management has for the people who work in that organisation. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and also, uh, and, the, and, the, and likewise, your clients. You know that if you, if you fail to turn a profit for that client and that client gets foreclosed by the bank, right, that... That they're they're nice people, you know, and they're going to go to the wall, and they may have been in business for twenty years, mm. you know, and you are partially responsible for their failure, so you don't want to let them down. Yeah. Okay. So this this the small scale of business reinforces the need for advertising agencies to to return to their core business practice and that they're, they're called their core mission and that is to make a profit for their clients yeah you know and when you're working you know, I, I was talking to people who work for the big agencies and a time and again i got the sense that the end result the return on investment the the actual efficacy of the work often never factored in the thinking of the people who were working on that business mm. one guy said to me that what is it? The efficacy of the work is is just part of the toolbox of retention. What did that? What does that mean? I mean, he was a he was a European account manager, account director, or business director, whatever title they give themselves now. And he said the results and the efficacy of the of the project were regarded simply as one of the tool part of the toolbox of retention. So, you know, kind of, and what what does that mean? What does that mean? And he said it wasn't it wasn't uppermost in people's minds that um, that if we do this and it doesn't work, then will we be in trouble? Probably not. You know. Yeah. Probably not. You know, Unilever, Procter and Gamble, they probably don't. You know, come down on you in a ton of bricks. They probably don't measure. I'm not sure. I don't know. You know, kind of. But I think the bigger the organisations, the less in touch they are with the basic economic realities of business. Yeah, and the more removed you are entirely. And if something, yeah, if something exactly. does, because you are removed, if something does blow up, to use yeah. a, you know, probably an unfortunate metaphor, you're so far away, it wouldn't, you wouldn't even notice anyway. Yeah, and this is why people used to despise Sir Martin Sorrell, because he used to inject a bit of financial reality into the lives of the people who worked for him with his, you know, kind of legendary Friday afternoon calls saying, Give me the numbers, you know, and it was, and these were I I know people who worked at Ogilvy and and people who worked at YNR in high positions who you regard you used to regard this as as a as a as a as an intrusion into their lives, mm. you know, like actually, man, this is your job <laughs> to report on the numbers, but it was an intrusion, and how dare he? And this is why people disliked the man. You know, it's all about the numbers. Well, frankly. You know, if, if 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 you're not making your numbers, then you're um, then somebody's got to go home and not come back. 
and and that I suppose if we are going to use the word purpose in the most authentic word uh, way even then surely that has to be that purpose you t- I know you said they're not mutually exclusive and of course you're right but that is that's the primary purpose yeah yeah it's it's what advertising does I think that's its function it always has been it it, it is there in order to cre- create demand for a client's products and services isn't it yeah I want to dip into um, a couple more sections of the new chapters, um, Stephen. The, the second of the new chapters is the, the clique setting Adlan's agenda. Who, who is that and, and what would you say their motives are? The preamble for that is that the mistake that I made with the book and with my fearful anticipation of a negative reaction was that everybody was sold on purpose. And I actually have come to the conclusion that the industry is actually not necessarily, people who work there are, are can see through it and see it as a, a bogus um, a bogus solution, a quick and easy solution to the complexities of advertising and marketing. Um, and, and they see it as that way. Um, and they're wise to that. And they're tired. Ty- <clears throat> Tired also of the politicization of the workplace as well, I think. Um, but I think that the, the people who are driving the, the, the purpose agenda, there are careerists who realize that they can get a job by being three parts executive creative director and two parts social justice warrior. Um, and they build their profile around that duality Mm. Uh, and so you know okay it's not enough and probably they don't have a book full of pencil winning work and they don't have a book full of work that has more importantly won an ipa effectiveness award or two but they do they have set up their own charity or they are ever present on the speaking circuit uh, about climate change Mm. And so this is, this is, uh, this is, I'm afraid, time and again, I heard people complaining that agencies were now fearful that the optics weren't right, i.e. that the appearances that they were presenting to the world weren't aligned with the, with that which was now acceptable. Um, So they, they would hire people who, who, who told a good story, you know, and looked good in the press and, you know, kind of, and also, quite frankly, hit their diversity and inclusion, inclusion targets. Um, so, yeah, so, so there are careerists who have done very well out of the, 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 the social purpose, you know, kind of a, the, the pushing of the social purpose agenda. Um, and there are also activists who are, pushing that agenda yeah and, and politically co- committed activists who are who are pushing that agenda would you say they're in the wrong job um no i think that um they they're doing a they're doing a very good job i mean uh, if, if if they're they're in the wrong job as far as what i think advertising's main purpose is but further, as far as their own agenda is concerned, they're doing very, they're very clever, you know. Kind of, I think that that left-leaning 
you know, people on the ex uh, on the extreme left of the political spectrum have have long ago realised that a way of achieving their end is to implant themselves into the into the into cultural institutions, mm. you know, and government institutions and whatever. It's called it's called the long march through the institutions, and it is something that Herbert Marcuse, uh, the great thinker. Uh, from the uh, Chicago School, um, fully um, encouraged, endorsed, supported, promoted. You know, kind of, it was a German guy called Rudi Dutschke, uh, an activist in the 1960s who coined the phrase the long march through the institutions. Um, but, um, yeah, and so that's what you see. So are they in the wrong job? Well, if you're talking about what advertising should really be doing, then I would say, yes, they're in the wrong job. But if you're talking about the, the achievement of the ends they've set themselves, then they've, they've done very well to put themselves in these positions. Yeah, no, you're right to, to make that um, make that difference clear. I remember being part of one of Mark Ritson's MBA classes and he said to us, and I'll never forget it, he said, marketing is a blood sport. And it was it's a really good response to people who question uh, stuff that is held to be true, I suppose, mm. across the board, whether it's something like Simon Sinek's Start With Why, which listeners to the show yeah. will know precisely what I think of that. Um, yeah. uh, regardless of what it is, if it ultimately delivers Simon's objectives to living a very happy, full, wealthy life, then actually, yeah, you know, so be it. It's a blood sport, and and, and I think that's key. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every you know, kind of there are there are people who who will promote artificial intelligence, people who will promote behavioural economics, people who will promote you know, kind of social purpose. Um, and you know, kind of, it's their career. It's what they do. Yeah. You know, and there are people who, and there are activists who will promote um, platforms which have a political end and a political ag agenda and a political aim behind them. And I do believe that the advertising industry is not, you know, kind of, as with many of our institutions, it's being run by people whose. Opinions and aims are on the ex on the far extreme of what the mainstream is, mm. and this is another thing that I that worries me about the advertising industry that that it is generally to the left of the mainstream, but the activists who are setting the agenda are far to the left of the mainstream. And when, for example, Tim Lindsay says that Naresh Ramchandani, Ramchandani is very good at, at making the right ethical choices for the advertising industry, it, 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 it's beggar's belief. You know, kind of how can, you know, kind of why? Why is Naresh very good at making the right ethical choices for the industry as president of the DNAD? Who asked him to? And when he says that every brand, all brands should be political, well, I, we all know that the politics that he is endorsing, that he thinks that they should be supporting, are his politics, which again are to the left of the mainstream. It's a weird thing that whenever you let people who are extremists set your, your, your moral compass, it usually ends badly. I think history has taught us. Completely. Going back to the, I suppose, the, the more uh, social purpose point, that you have been making, you cite the Ipsos data to, to kind of reinforce the point. 
that part of this effect or part of perhaps the reason why social purpose is 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 seen to be more and more of a driver of work as opposed to commercial factors is that people who work in advertising are now the least trusted collective in the UK. It just speaks of the vanity and the arrogance of of, of the advertising industry that, that we think that we can make the right moral choices for people, you know, that we think that we can set a, a cultural agenda, that we think that we can preach to people, you know, kind of when we are the least trusted occupation below estate agents, below everybody. Out of 30 occupations, we came bottom. Yeah. You know? And it just speaks of the sheer arrogance and and self-absorption and how out of touch we are and how, how entitled, this sense of entitlement that we have about ourselves. You know, it's the weirdest paradox that as advertising has drifted to the margins of British cultural life, its sense of its own importance and the, the sense that it has the right to tell people what to do has increased exponentially. Yeah. I um I used that same Ipsos poll in a in a talk that I gave a few months ago with Ryan Woolman, in fact. And I do remember, I think it was Louis Grenier, who's a French marketer. He pointed out when I spoke to him that perhaps it's slightly skewed because when people who were responding on the poll, when people think of advertising, they typically think of advertising that might be intrusive or that annoys them and that could have skewed the poll. Yeah. And I remember at the time thinking, well, perhaps that is a good point. But then on reflection, I'm sure every other profession has probably got a similar uh, kind of response as to why perhaps they've got this negative perception because, you know, so much gets spun and so much is seen out of context. Hmm. But whichever way you look at it, it you, you know, you're, we're not even in a, in a relegation battle at the bottom. We're firmly, firmly rooted no. to the bottom of the table. No, it's, it's as if we've had 12 points deducted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. we're, we're gone. You know, two comes down with us. Exactly that. Exactly that. And then the impact on it, on the industry then, it seems to also be affecting what work gets awarded. Yeah. Well, if the awards juries all come from the same, all share the same opinions, all come from the same monoculture, then of course they're going to give work to work which aligns with their view of what good work is. And, I mean, awards juries are you know, kind of like... The, we all we all know that you know kind of like that that there are no there are very few mavericks who sit on awards juries. For the past twenty years, you cannot win a poster, DNAD or can unless it is it subscribes to Neil French's dictum that the great poster or the great press ad is the visual. Take away the body copy, take away the headline, take away the strap line. And the really great poster is the one where you take away the logo. So you simply have the visual. And Neil came out with that in about 2006, I think it was. And subsequently, as I don't, I, I can't, I can't, you, you'd struggle to find anybody who has brooked that convention, you know. So the same kind of work wins year after year after year. Mm. And in that case, once purpose takes hold and, you know, and that becomes the, watchword for creative excellence then you know kind of it's very difficult to shake it plus the people who are judging this work have probably never 
encountered the words return on investment in their lives. Mm. They don't understand that a successful piece of work actually has to wash its face. And they don't look for that when they're assessing a piece of work. They look for work that is famous. Okay. And if you can prove its fame by putting together a 90 second film in with, with quick cuts from various, you know, kind of like websites and TV channels and, and indicating that social media, everybody was talking about it. What that tells the judge is this is famous. And those judges actually, their whole, their, their whole as, as Andrew Tenz and Ian Murray have said, that their whole driver for people who work in advertising is fame and self-aggrandizement. So they, they, they look for pieces of work which reflect their own viewpoint on what success looks like. So if you show something that, so if a piece of work looks like it has generated shed loads of publicity, then for them, that's a winner. Completely. Did you happen to see, I meant to, um, I meant to bring this up the other day when we, when we spoke initially, Steve, and I know you have subsequently spoken to and know John Evans um, yeah. Well, did you see his uh, System One research yeah. when, when they were looking at the uh, campaigns Turkey of the Week ads versus Can versus you know the most effective yeah. ads? Yes, he. Ran- I mean that summed it all up for me. That was, I mean, that was such a such a hallelujah moment. He ran Grand Prix at System One, in which they assess the efficacy of advertising from from very in depth audience research. Um, they ran the Turkey campaigns Turkey of the Week versus Cannes Grand Prix winners, and they found, I think this is right, that the Turkeys of the Week were more effective right. than the Grand Prix winners. Um, but this is, as I said on John's podcast, this is what the IPA have found, that the that creatively awarded work is now no longer more effective than ordinary work. And this is what prompted the IPA to announce a crisis of creative effectiveness in the industry. And we have, yeah, we, we have forgotten how to build, to, 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 to build strong brands and sell. Or we don't want to anymore. And you know my, my theory on that is because we are so left-leaning that the, whole, the mere idea of, of, of fueling capitalism, capitalism's engine of growth is now to a, a, a parent, a, abhorrent to us, you know, kind of, um, and we've had to, we've had to find a new raison d'etre and that new raison d'etre is saving the world. Yeah, no, I, I, I fully agree with you, Steve. Do you think the, the being so left-leaning um, is something that can be improved and should be improved by the, the diversity issue because you talk on one of the new chapters about Adlan missing the point of diversity and we, we touched on it I suppose in a way yeah. albeit indirectly when we spoke about the lack of diversity of office locations in, in the UK but is, is class a bigger barrier than race when it comes to diversity are political stances uh, a, a bigger barrier than than class I mean they're one and the same thing, you know, kind of that um, race and class are barriers to entry into the advertising industry. But I think if you focus simply upon race, then yeah. you're missing the point. You know, kind of Brixton Finishing School last year asked its former pupils what was the barrier, the biggest barrier to 
entering the advertising industry. And the headlines went to 31% said that race is the barrier. But 71%, so 31% said race, 71% believe not knowing the right person is the barrier. And what not knowing the right person means is that you don't have the connections with the people in the industry who will open those doors for you. You don't have that network. You aren't part of that middle-class gated community and that support network whereby so-and-so will open a door for you. Can you get so-and-so a, a, a placement? Can you get so-and-so an internship? Can you? And then, of course, once, once that person is in there, they have, the right, they have all of the cultural know-how yeah. to game the system, right? Whereas if you're a working class kid, whatever your ethnic racial background, if you are implanted into that system, you don't know how to game it. Because the language people use, the references they use, make you uncomfortable and you don't feel like you belong. And this is something that James Hillhouse said, who runs a company called Commercial Break, a fabulous company. And for years now, dear old James has been trying to get people from working class backgrounds into the creative industry industries. And he says what happens is that the, the agencies will take somebody, regardless of rate, color, you know, kind of the color or ethnicity. And for two weeks, they will, they will be very pleased with this kind of pet that they've taken in. Okay, this stray that they've taken in. And they'll put, or, they'll put Orlando or they'll put Oscar and they'll put Boudica on as their mentors. And Boudica and Oscar will, you know, kind of fuss around them for a while and take them down to the canteen or whatever. And then they'll lose interest or they won't have time. And then the these the 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 the, the, new, the newcomers will eventually drift away because they feel out of place. Okay. And that's what and and they're out of place because they aren't part of the monoculture. Okay. So simply ticking boxes and and getting I know what we need. We need to we need to increase our BAME quotient, you know. But what they actually should be doing is they need to increase the quotient of people who live outside the bubble, you know, who bring experience beyond that middle-class experience that characterizes agency life. You know, the stats, if you take that working-class kid out of the Brixton Finishing School, they are going to be dropped into a place where 88% of the people have a degree or a master's compared to 26% of the rest of the population. They'll be working amongst people who 70% of whom grew up in a household where the chief breadwinner was AB compared to 29%, right? And, you know, kind of, um, I think they'll, they'll be working with people where only 23% came from a DE background as opposed to 43% is the national uh, average. So, yeah, so have we, have we got the wrong end of the stick? By focusing, I fear, on bumping up the BAME figures, we should be, I think, colorblind to that, and we should be looking at the background of those people. We already have BAME people working in the industry, and you know what? Of those, 69% were privately bloody educated. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, as opposed, as opposed to 77% of the general population. Yeah, well, that I mean, that sums it up, I think. Steve, I've got a couple of listener questions to put to you. Yeah. 
So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us asking. And I think you're familiar with both of our questioners today. We've got uh, Call to Action alumni and mutual friend Ian Pritchard, who has asked, are there any Soho pubs you have to steer clear of since the book came out? Um, that's a good question I I think in answer to that question the the resistance that I have I have experienced is passive totally passive people won't return my calls people who are I know not even opposed to my argument won't return my calls for fear that I include them in the narrative There is a general sense of fear about, I'm not frightened. I am really not frightened, you know, about going into pubs and bumping into people. People are frightened of being seen drinking with me. (laughs) That would be the problem. Uh, That's it, honestly. I could tell you, I don't want to be indiscreet, but I could ream off the names of luminaries who 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 won't return my calls because they're afraid, as I say, they'll be included in the narrative. You know, kind of the people who have said that they enjoy the book mm. are courageous. The people, you know, I've got, I've, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate in, some, in that some people who are a lot smarter and more talented than I have endorsed the book. But there is a, there is a, a degree of courage required for them to do that, as in your case, for you doing this podcast. Well, I mean, this will never air for that very reason. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's fine. It's quite telling, isn't it? It's quite telling, sadly. But okay, so the answer to Ian is that there's no pubs you will steer clear of, but there's probably pubs that people drinking within them hope you stay clear of. <laughs> yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, because they don't want to be seen drinking with me in case it gets back to, in case it, it, it colors people's views of them. Mm. You know, there's a, there's, as I said before about, that which used to be controversial used to be used to be embraced by by the people of the left, of the people of a progressive sensibility, because it challenged the establishment and the conventional wisdom. Now that which is regarded as controversial is is ignored or smothered by the people on the left because it challenges their conventional wisdom. And yeah, it's weird how much fear there is in this world. There is, I mean, I don't know whether you've noticed it, but it is, Nick Asprey has written a fantastic article about purpose. And, but, and he says that people, he has also experienced people will not come out and say they agree with it for fear that their agreement is noted by their peers. Yeah, no, I have seen that. I have seen that. I saw that very recently, in fact. I remember my brother uh, was at Leo's Burnett for years and years and years. And he won't mind me telling this story now because he fell out of love with the industry and is now no longer even a, a small part of it. But I remember when he right. he he became chairman of um, Leo Burnett UK. And one of the first challenges he had, a guy called Andrew, Andrew Edwards, he um, one of the first challenges yeah. he had was um, a creative team that worked at Leo's who would work late um like i suppose most uh, but they would often get very drunk and set fire to the office on their way out <laughs> um, <laughs> i remember at the time one of the first things he was tasked with is you know we, we've got to get rid of these guys and i and i and i, and I know yeah. he didn't because he said but but they're they're yeah. the best team we've got 
<laughs> just yeah. get some yeah, fire yeah, extinguishers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I think everyone's just too scared to do anything. Not that I'm, you know, saying that we should all set fire to our offices, but anyway. No, but, but you can see it reflected in the style of the advertising. I mean, it is so pole-faced now, isn't it? I mean, um, the number of articles one reads, there's a flurry of articles, and Paul Feldwick has, 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 has written the best, about how we've stopped entertaining. Yes. You know? uh, and we've stopped entertaining because we've become pole-faced and too serious and too frightened of poking fun and being funny. Um, it's, it's a... It's a the new puritanism that we're going through really is. It's, um, but it's, 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 it happens when you, when you politicise all of life, okay? The politicisation of the workplace, everything in life, if, if the people on the extreme left have their way, every aspect of life will be politicised, okay? And, and as I say, uh, I, I call my book Can't Sell, Won't Sell in homage to Dario Fole who was a Marxist, who wrote, Italian playwright, who wrote a book called Can't Pay, Won't Pay. And I say I actually include that because it's, it's a funny play, but it's the, first, it's the only time in, in anyone's memory that funny and Marxism have been used in <laughs> yeah. the same sentence. Yeah, awesome. Question, question two comes from another uh, good friend and former guest, Dr. Draper, a.k.a. Ryan Woolman. All right. Hello to, hello to Ian. Hello to Ian, by the way. I'm, I, I miss talking to you and I look forward to doing so again. Um, and hello to Ryan. Lovely to, to hear from you. Ryan says, a common argument I get from people is, quote, at least these brands slash companies are doing something, even if they're not perfect. So stop being so negative. What would you say to that? So he's probably he's talking about the uh, uh, social purpose yeah, bashing. It's a, it's- it's a good point. All I would say is, firstly, I would require that those brands pay their taxes, look after the environment. If you mess it up, clean it up. Look after your staff, okay? If they want to unionise, let them. If your CEO is earning 10 times the average income of the per, of the, uh, the average income of the people in the staff then you've got to start asking questions about what value you're getting from them so look after the environment look after your staff look after your suppliers pay them properly don't screw them to the floor okay look look after your customers don't exploit them don't rip them off don't treat them like idiots okay and if you if you and and also look after your shareholders if you're a if you're a listed company because without your shareholders you're in stock you couldn't do the things that you need mm. to do so those things so if you if if you do want a social purpose do all of those things yeah. okay and then accept that your commercial purpose is 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 equally as valid so that every time you produce something and somebody buys it, then you somebody else gets paid. You know, the people in your workforce get paid. Okay. Mm. Um, so are they, in answer to your question, yes, they are, you know, kind of, it, 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 they are trying to do good, but most of them can do good by doing those five things. Yeah. Pay your taxes, look after your staff, look after the environment, look after your suppliers, and look after your customers. 
If you've got any profit left over after doing that, after you've reinvested in your plant into research and development, then yeah, by all mm. means, yeah, embrace your social purpose. Yes, yeah, those priorities. There's a great, there's a great paragraph in your book which I have highlighted in front of me, which is part of the new chapters. Um, that I'll read out if you don't mind yeah. about why commercial purpose takes precedence. Or in fact, for me, it's more clarifying why commercial purpose, what the social purpose within commercial purpose actually is. Yeah. Um, and, and it says, if we doubt the importance of this, our commercial purpose, we should remind ourselves that every time someone buys something we've advertised, we enable someone else to get paid and not just the person in the shop where it was purchased. That sale pays the wages of the person who made the thing or grew it, the person who packaged it, the person in the warehouse where it was stored, the person who delivered it to the shop, and the person who cleaned the shop after closing time. It's just, it's just, there's something about that that just, honestly, I, I loved it when I first read that, Steve, because it's just, it seems to be something that, Having said it out loud, it seems so obvious and yet yeah. it's so missed. People don't seem to see it or get it. Well, the advertising industry has done a terrible job of making that argument. An absolutely dreadful job of making that argument. I, you know, I explained that to a couple of students at one of the advertising schools um, about four weeks ago. And they said, no one's ever said this to us before. We didn't know that this, we couldn't make that connection. Yeah. We didn't think, we thought that selling things was exploiting the customer. Yes. Yeah. Or tricking yeah. them somehow, isn't some, it? Yeah. Yeah, tricking them. We thought that, and that, that, and that, and that, and that in selling something, we're, we're actually, yeah, it, it, it's dishonest. Okay. We have, and the advertising industry has, has done an appalling job, I think, of making the argument for why we are so essential to people's lives, you know, kind of to, to the true social purpose that we, that we perform. And, and because we failed to make this point about our commercial purpose, our clients no longer put any value on what we do. You know, not only have we failed to make the point generally to society, but we failed to make the point to our clients, right? That they don't see our contribution is adding value to their bottom line anymore okay and so it, this, the, it, on, on may the 12th one industry leader took to linkedin to complain that clients no longer appreciate the time and talent required to produce a quality product nor do they realize that this costs money they want it quick and cheap so, quote, where once the public rather liked advertising and we liked working in the business, our consuming public now do pretty much anything to avoid it. And sadly, a lot of us are looking for a way to leave. OK, the, the following day, this same person went into campaign and said what was once a powerful business tool that was capable of inserting itself into popular culture that people said they liked as much as or more than the programs is debased and devalued. Advertising is debased and devalued. And we who work in it are now trying to leave. And the person who came up with that inspirational message is the chairman of the DNAD, Tim Lindsay. And we have failed to make the argument. He's saying we failed to make the argument that clients no longer value us and have turned 
agency life into a misery. And it's happened on his watch. He's been the chairman of DNAD now for getting on for 10 years. You know, kind of, but what Tim and the other leaders of our institutions, and I cite the advertising, the advertising association, the DMA, the, dr- the drum campaign, you know, kind of what they've done is that they've, they, it's, it, they have been much, they have preferred to save the world rather than save the advertising industry. Okay. And so while they've been saving the world, advertising's value has been debased. As it says, it has become debased and devalued. And it's happened. Our institutions have let this happen. Okay. Because we failed to make the point that every time someone buys something that we've advertised, somebody else gets paid. Okay. And somebody else gets paid and our clients make a profit from it. And we failed to make those points. And it is our institution's fault. Yeah, well said. Well, I think that's um, I think that gives not only Ryan but everyone else listening enough to try and write that um, perception. Good, because it's it's so key. As I said, I've, I've highlighted it. It's gonna it's gonna go up on the office <laughs> wall when we finally get back to the agency. The final part of the interview then is our our four pertinent poses that we like to throw at all of our guests, Steve. And yeah. they start with number one. What advice would you give to your younger self? Kiss more girls. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, you probably have to edit that. No, no, not at all. That's going no, in. No, that was, that was John, John Betjeman said that actually. Okay. Um, when he was in his eighties, and someone, I think it was, you know, someone said, "What, what do you regret most about your life?" And he said, "I didn't kiss enough girls." When he could, you know. Did you hear um, uh, Peter Crouch years ago when he was asked what he would have been if he wasn't a footballer? A virgin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly think that Peter Crouch has got the TV shows on the strength of that one liner. I think everybody just yeah. thinks that he's going to come up with something as witty every time he opens his mouth. Unfortunately, he doesn't. He's a he's a funny guy. He's a funny guy. He is. No, he is genuinely. Yeah, but that was a great. That is a great, great line. Yeah. Uh, number number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Um, the fixation with fashion and fads, uh, um, and the attendant lack of rigor, um, and respect for the principles and processes that lead to good advertising and good marketing communication. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 It's completely, completely the fundamentals, not the trends. Yeah. Completely. Um, number three, are there any books that you would recommend in addition to obviously can't sell, won't sell? Yeah, of course. I'm assuming some Paul Feldwick uh, books come up here, but I'm assuming there's going to be plenty. Yeah, um, my, I tell you what, I think as, a, a, as far as advertising books are concerned, oh gosh. I, I would always say anything by Sir Jeremy Bullmore, to be quite honest. Yes. I think Sir Jeremy is, is, we, we, is sorely missed as an industry spokesman now that his, camp, his articles in campaign and in other media have been, you know, kind of, of, of ended. And he was, he was, um, he, 
he was our intellectual. He was mm. the industry's sage, but he didn't wear it. As he, he, you know, he didn't presume to be the industry's intellectual. You know, kind of. He, he but he was just clever. I, whenever I went out, whenever I was in Jeremy's company, I came away feeling cleverer than I did beforehand, simply by being in his company. It's funny you say that. I am um, I'm mildly obsessed with with the man, and I've got a huge back catalogue of his his old campaign articles and any anything else I could find online, saved off as a PDF and added to my Kindle. Yeah. Yes. 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 I, I agree. And as a as a as a um as a as a book, do you want a non advertising book? Yes, please. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, I mentioned it earlier. And um, and it's it's called Factfulness, and it's a book by by Hans Rosling essentially, uh, and his daughter Anna, and uh, and his other daughter Ola, I think it is. But Hans Rosling, Factfulness: Ten Reasons Why We're Wrong About About the World. Um, and somebody, Vicky, dear old Vicky Ross, has likened "Can't Sell, Won't Sell" to the advertising equivalent of factfulness. Um, and I would ad- I would advise I would advise everybody to read Factfulness. It it puts a spring in your step. It makes you realise that the that the that the air of gloom that seems to descend upon that, all of us. Uh, it, it basically says that we, li- we this is the best time in world history to be alive, and then gives you the facts to support that. Mm. Um, and yeah, yeah, read it anyway. It's a great book. Yeah, we'll we'll certainly link to that, include and as well as um as well as your your own books. But I, funny enough, I remember seeing a video, a uh, talk from Hans Rosling, probably about ten years ago. It wasn't long after we started Gasp, right. and it absolutely blew me away. And I wonder if some of the content yeah, of that is that. either from or fed into fatfulness. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then number four, we always dedicate every episode to someone, and we bestow or hospital pass that honor, oh, depending right. on your view, to our guest. Right. Um who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly do the honours? I would dedicate it to my partner, Morag Brennan, who throughout all of everything that I've ever written, it probably is a, is a blessing in disguise for her, but she has to spend, spend months either listening to me saying, what do you think of this, Mo? Does this make sense? Well, <laughs> just read this bit. I've just written this. And this can happen. <laughs> Or at any time of day or night. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, what do you think of, what do you think of this? Or talking to my back and my shoulders in the kitchen yeah as i lean over the over the pc so to morag <laughs> uh, and anyone who is from anyone i don't know if anyone's familiar with my with with work that i've done uh morag was the 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 client on the mng investments campaign which um which Ah. which uh, you know kind of some people if, if you know any if any of you vaguely are familiar with work what what i did then it was a, a very big campaign and mo was the client on it um ah, so a very fantastic. smart marketing person herself oh fantastic well th- this episode is then very very proudly dedicated to morag yeah morag M-O-R-A-G. putting up with you for all these years putting up with me frankly uh, so uh, as a final call to action for our listeners, they can check out um, all of the links to everything we've discussed, discussed in this episode's listing 
um, to all of your books. I'll, I'm going to link to, I'll try and find the Hans Rosling talk, in fact, because I think that alongside his book, Factfulness, um, is, is worth sharing. Yeah. Um, how else can people get more Steve Harrison? And before you answer that, how and when can they get the updated book? Okay, great. The book is available on Amazon and Book Depository um, now. Um, so, yeah, uh, buy, but please, by all means, buy the book with the black type. Because this is the new updated edition, but my publisher gave it a new ISBN number, unfortunately. And so the old version with the red type on the cover is still on Amazon. It's out of, it's out of stock. There's no more stock left. But the new edition with its own ISBN number with, has the black type. So Can't Sell, Won't Sell is in black type and it has a flash on the top right-hand corner saying six new chapters. Ah, Okay. Ah, well, I'm, I'm pleased you mentioned that because I was going to ask him if the Kindle edition I bought a few weeks oh, ago or a few months ago, no. whether that would have got updated. But if it's a new ISPN, yeah, I, I, I imagine it would be yes, the same there. Please. Yes. <laughs> That's all right. And, and how else can people get more Steve Harrison? How can we find you easily and, and get more? I, I, have a, I am on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, I think. Anyone who wants to call me and make threatening phone calls to me can call me on 07887996121 that's 07887996121 anyone who's read my books and wants to take me to task then feel free to do so or um, or my email address is in i always put my email address in every book what i write uh, because i'm a direct response person at heart Ah, nice. And my nice. email address is Harris Old Steve. That's Harrison without the N. Harris Old Steve at googlemail.com. Fantastic. Well, there you have it. Well, um, Steve, thank you so much thank for joining you, us. It's been, it's been a real privilege and, and a pleasure. No, no, thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking, talking to you. Um, I'm a great admirer of what you try to do and your irreverent and maverick old-fashioned maverick approach to our business and also your old-fashioned commercial and entrepreneurial approach to our business so it's been a pleasure shooting the breeze with you it's far too kind but thank you so much and um thank you to everybody listening if you've enjoyed this episode please share and review the pod keep questions and guest requests coming in and to find us it's easy to find gasp online You can check out CTA pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try.